We're going to read this morning from Colossians. We're headed into chapter 3 this morning, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 4. Stay standing while I read if you're able. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is God's word for us today. You can be seated. We'll go ahead and open up to Colossians chapter 3, that uh, short passage that Olivia just read. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4, uh, which is, uh, if I had a favorite passage in the Bible, uh, this would be one of them. Uh, it's hard to have an absolute favorite, but uh, this passage in particular uh, has done a lot of work on my own heart uh, in the course of my life. And so I've been excited to, to get to this point in Colossians as we've been walking through Uh, this letter. So Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If I were to ask you to describe yourself, uh, let's just imagine you're at one of those awkward office Christmas parties, and there's that icebreaker question of like, tell us about yourself. Uh, You might think of a couple of things right off the bat uh, to describe yourself. You might think of the different roles that you play in your life. Uh, You're a father or a mother. Uh, You're a brother or a sister, a, a spouse, a co-worker, friend. You might think uh, immediately, oftentimes we go to our occupation, right? I'm a mechanic, or I'm a manager, or a salesman, or a barista, or a student, or a parent. Uh, we might think of our culture or ethnicity. I'm white, or black, I'm Puerto Rican, or German, uh, or Norwegian in my case, if you really want to get into my ancestry. Uh, I, increasingly, we think uh, oftentimes in terms of our ideas or our ideologies, Uh, When we think of who we are, we think of I'm conservative or I'm progressive, I'm Republican or Democrat or none of the above. Uh, Those become identity level statements for us. Uh, You see, we live in an era in which uh, there is an increasing kind of narrative and, and, and expectation that you're able to define your identity clearly, accurately, and authentically. That you're able to say, this is who I am. And all those different things, your role, your occupation, uh, your culture, your ethnicity, your ideology, all those are part of who you are. Uh, But the expectation is that you would be able to say, this is who I am at my truest self, my true identity, and then live out of that in every aspect of your life. Uh, This expectation is everywhere from social media to uh, side hustle culture of trying to make a name for yourself uh, by being an influencer, by selling whatever it is that you do online. This is how our politics are wired these days around identity and who you are. Uh, It's how we think about sexuality and gender in our world is that it is part of this core essence of who I am and it is on each one of us to discover define, and then live out of our true, authentic self. That's a lot of pressure. Uh, And I think if you look at kind of, you take just the temperature of the world that we live in, at the same time that we are saying, be who you really are, discover your truth and live authentically into that truth, are we not more anxious and insecure and stressed out than ever before? 
There's a ton of burden in this sense that I have to discover and live out who I really am at the core essence of my identity. Uh, One of my favorite authors, Henry Nouwen, a a few decades ago, he identified uh, three lies that most of us believe about our identity, about who I really am. Three lies that most of us believe about our identity that he says, if we believe these things, will actually not satisfy us but make us stressed out. The first lie he said that we believe about our identity is that I am what I do. This one is very easy for us to believe because we spend a lot of time doing things. Uh, I am my occupation. I am my position in the organizational chart at work. I am my promotion or how many people report to me. I am a parent. And so my identity becomes wrapped up in whatever occupation or vocation I find myself in. The second lie he said we believe is that I am what I have, that I am the sum total of my bank account or the house that I own in the suburb that I live in. I am the reputation that I have or the influence that I have or the followers that I have, that I have these possessions and so therefore I am. They are my identity. The third lie that he said that we believe, which I think is the more insidious lie, is that I am what other people say about me. That I am what other people say about me. That I am what my parents said about me growing up or what my family said about me growing up. Uh, I am what my boss or my coworkers think about me or what my neighbors think about me. I am what my spouse thinks about me or my kids say about me. Or I am what I say about me, positive or negative. Now, I would add a fourth lie to Nowen's list. Nowen died a few years ago, and so he didn't really get to see the rise of social media and the world that we live in, but I would say the fourth lie that we believe is that I am what I feel, that my feelings, my desires, the longings that I have tell me something about who I really am on the inside. Now, Henry Nowen, in his book, Life of the Beloved, here's what he said. He said, all of these, the reason why these stress us out And the reason why when we believe these lies, they they initially say, uh, this is going to actually satisfy you and give you an identity, but they actually don't do that. Uh, is because they require us to constantly perform and constantly be doing. Here's what he said. Uh, This is one of my favorite quotes from every time I read it, I have to stop it and just think. He says, aren't you like me, hoping that some person, thing, or event will come along to give you that final feeling of inner well-being you desire? Don't you often hope maybe this book idea, course, trip, job, country, or relationship will fulfill my deepest desire. But as long as you are waiting for that mysterious moment, you will go on running helter-skelter, always anxious and restless, always lustful and angry, never fully satisfied. You know that this is the compulsiveness that keeps us going and busy, but at the same time makes us wonder whether we are getting anywhere in the long run. This is the way to spiritual exhaustion and burnout. This is the way to spiritual death. And I think that's where many of us live, constantly feeling like we have to prove ourselves or perform in some kind of way to find who we truly are, to make something of ourselves, to have an identity worth living that is strong enough to make me feel validated and good enough in a world that is just competing over the different voices and pressures that are placed on us. But the way of Jesus offers us a different approach to identity, a different starting point for who I really am. 
And we see that in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, in this beautiful, short, uh, just wonder of a passage that Paul has finally culminated his argument in uh, by giving us this picture of, of not just who we are, but where we are. You see, a, a, a Christian's identity, who you are at the core essence of your being, who you are, the labels and the ideas and the, the, the belonging that you are, it all begins not with this question of who am I, but where am I? Where am I? Notice what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 3. He says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life, and that word life he uses is zoe, meaning everything, the essence of who you are, the fullness of who you are, who you are is hidden with Jesus in God. Just, just marinate in that for a second. What does that mean? That who you are is with Jesus in the very heart of who God is. You see, the first thing that this tells us is that in your identity when you are a follower of Jesus, like that essence, that core of who you are, your identity is received, it is not achieved. It is something that is given to you, not something that you earn or that you fight for or that you work for. It is something that is given to you. It is a received identity. And the question is not, who am I, but where am I? And notice where you are. You are hidden with Christ in God. Now, the word hidden in the Greek is the word crypto, uh, which, like, you think cryptocurrency, right? Which a year ago would have meant a very secure place, but now it doesn't mean that anymore, right? But the idea of a crypt, it is something is, is, is wrapped, it is secure, it is protected, it is, it is not going anywhere. He's saying you, when you are in Jesus, you are kept safe in him, in the very heart of who God is. You see, Paul is explaining for us what is the primary language for what it means to be a Christian in the New Testament. The word Christian only appears twice in the whole New Testament. The word disciple appears a few more times, but the language that is used more often than not is that you are in Christ. Uh, it is that you are incorporated into him or that you are covered by him or that when you become a follower of Jesus, you are brought under his authority and under his protection that he now represents you and you are now under him. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus is that you are in his care and that what he has done, he has done to bring you into his, himself. And just think about what Paul has said about Jesus so far in Colossians, if you've been with us. Just the, the words that he's used to describe who Jesus is. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. He is the, the fullness of God. He is the head of the church. He is the, the purpose of creation. He is over and above every authority that ever is or ever will be. And so when Paul says, you are hidden in Christ, that's where you're hidden. What can touch you there? Like what, what label can stick to you there? What, what, what mistake can, can meet you there? 
It's like the essence of saying, like, if you want to get to me, you have to go through both God the Father and Jesus, the head of all things. You can't get to me there. I'm secure. I'm secure in who Jesus is and who he says I am. But notice, that's where we are, but where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? Look at verse 1. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So you and me, when you are a follower of Jesus, when you turn from your sins and trust in Jesus, you are in Jesus, hidden in him, and where is Jesus? He's at the right hand of God the Father. Now, we don't often have this same, we don't use this idea as much of right-hand man, but in that era, when Paul is writing, they had kings and emperors and sovereigns uh, who ruled over entire empires. And a king or a sovereign would have a right-hand man. Uh, They would sit at the right hand. Like if you're a Lord of the Rings nerd, you know what this means, right? There's a throne and then there's the steward of the throne, the one who who acts on behalf of the king, right? That position, the fact that Jesus is at the right hand of God would have given him at least three things. That position gives him approval. To be in the right hand seat is that you are approved by this sovereign and and you are welcomed into that seat. The king says, you can sit here, I approve of you, you are my representative. You are allowed here. And so Jesus sits in the position of approval in God's kingdom. But it's also the position of access. Not only are you approved by this sovereign, you have access to this sovereign. That this king would turn to his right-hand man and say, uh, what do you think I should do? Or this right-hand man or woman would have this idea and say, hey, I think we should consider this. It was the place of access and advice and and tell me what you think. That's where Jesus is in the position of access. But he's also in the position of authority. Meaning that if the sovereign was taking a nap, which God the Father never does, but if the sovereign was taking a nap or if he was ill or if he was unable to perform his duties, the second in command or the right hand could act on behalf of the king. And so Jesus is in the position of authority. He acts on behalf of God the Father. Now all that is where Jesus is. And where are you? In Jesus. I like to maybe picture this, that you and I are sitting on his lap, a better Santa. Right? We're, like, like Jesus is there at the right hand of God the Father, and, and we are invited to then sit with him in that seat, which means that the access that Jesus has to God the Father, you now have through Jesus. The approval that Jesus has from God the Father, you now have through Jesus. And dare we even consider the authority that Jesus has, we now have through Jesus. This is, this is profound, what it means that your life is hidden with Christ and God, is that in and through Jesus, you have all of those things that you could ever need. And that's where you are. And how often do we just struggle with insecurity? Does God hear me? Does God care about me? Is God going to work things out for my good? What does Paul say? You right now are hidden with Christ in God. You're sitting on the lap of God's right-hand man. Like, that is your identity when you are a follower of Jesus, is that you are an approved son or daughter of God. 
You're a son or daughter of God who has access and authority because of who Jesus is, and nothing can touch you there. It has to go through God the Father and Jesus first. Man, Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, just marinate on that. Right? Just sit in that right now. In God's scheme of the universe, that's where you are. Hidden with Christ in God. Now, this is hard for us to get. I think it's hard for us to get because this, how, how, do, we, how do we get this? How do we actually get this identity? Look what Paul says. Right, if that's where I am, if that's where I am, how do I get there? Right, how do I get there, right? You're, you're like, I'm a follower of Jesus or I'm interested in being a follower of Jesus. How do I get that identity? Look at what he says in verse three, right before that. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now, Paul cannot mean that this happens when you die because he's using present tense language and he's talking to real followers of Jesus as they are continuing to live their life. So so he's not saying this happens after you die, then you go to a hidden place with Jesus. He's saying right now you are hidden in Christ, in God, but in order to get there or in order to experience that, you have to die. Now, he's not talking about your literal death. He's saying you have to recognize this. Like a dead thing cannot do anything for itself. It cannot perform for itself. It cannot act. It cannot present a resume. A dead thing does not bring anything to the table except its deadness. He's saying that this identity or this belonging, being hidden in Christ, is not something that you achieve or earn. It is something that is given to you by the sheer grace and love of God. Because you're dead. And it is God's love and his work for you in Jesus that brings you into this place. This identity is given to you by God through the work of Jesus. Not through anything that you did or anything that you earned or anything that you achieved or anything that you have. He uses this language and he's used this language throughout chapter 2 and into chapter 3. You notice chapter 3 verse 1 he says if you have been raised with Christ. All right, so how this happens is you die and then you are raised again and what he is saying is you have to recognize that Jesus's death on the cross was your death. He died for you in your place. And when he rose again, he rose with you to put you in his place, to put you in the seat next to him and God the Father, right? So this, this identity comes to you as you identify with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Say, Jesus' death was for me and my sins. And so Jesus' life and his victory over death and his position at the right hand of the Father is now mine. Not because I earned it or because I worked for it, but because I died. And my life is now in Jesus. Through his life, death, and resurrection, when I place my faith, trust, and hope in that, That is how I am brought into this hidden place. That is how I receive this identity as the approved son or daughter of God. But the reason why we struggle with this is because it is incredibly humbling to say, I don't earn this. We love to work for our identity. We love to perform for our identity because at the end of the day, I can say, I did it. I accomplished this. Look at the identity that I built. Look at the followers that I built. Look at the the life that I built. And it becomes very easy for us to chase after things because they give us some sense of satisfaction or progress 
or pride. But to say this identity is completely given to you and you did nothing to earn it forces me to say, I'm humbled. I'm humbled by that. But at the same time, this identity, when you actually begin to understand this and ruminate this and believe in this, this identity does not humble you to make you feel bad, but it instead humbles you to recognize how much God has given you. Right? Just, just think about it. Like Some of us are tempted to think too highly of ourselves. Right? We think lofty thoughts of ourselves. We're very ambitious, and we think, we think, man, I've got it all together. You look in the mirror, you're like, looking good today. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes when we build an identity on our performance, it becomes all about what I've done. And then we come to Jesus and we think, okay, I'm going to master this Jesus thing. And before long, we become puffed up, as Paul said in previous verses. But what does this identity tell you? This identity of being hidden in Jesus says, you died. So this identity forces me to recognize every day that I didn't bring anything to this equation. That my sins contributed and placed Christ on the cross. And so this identity keeps me humble. It keeps me humble. But some of us are tempted to think too lowly of ourselves. We think negative thoughts about ourselves. We beat ourselves up all the time. We can do nothing good. We're full of shame and maybe the narratives that our family told us that, that cause us to just feel terrible about ourselves. What does this identity tell us? Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Right? And so this identity gives you worth. It elevates you. It, it raises you. And your sense of worth and purpose, not in yourself, as if you somehow have to conjure positive feelings about yourself, but Christ cares for you so much that he would lift you up into the seat of honor in the kingdom of God. And so this identity, right, as you believe this, as you begin to understand, when you are a follower of Jesus, my life is hidden with Christ and God, it will never overinflate your ego but it will also never beat you up to say you need to feel terrible about yourself. It instead will tell you, I matter to God that Christ died for my sins, so yes, I have sins, but he also raised me to life again and seated me in the position of access and authority, and so I can have a completely humble and honest view of myself and live in security, knowing that I don't make a name for myself. My hope is in the name of Jesus, and I'm hidden with him. So what have I left to fear? You don't have to work for that. You just simply have to trust. You believe that. How do you live into this? How do you experience this in your life? Uh, there's two parallel commands that Paul gives in these few verses uh, that I think are that's really the only thing that we do. Right? It's the only thing that we do in these verses. He says, seek the things that are above. And he says, set your mind on things that are above. Now, what he's saying here, these are not things that you have to somehow manifest these realities. He's instead saying, like, consider this, that this is reality, and so you need to live like it. Live as if you are actually hidden with Christ in God. Live as if this is actually true, because Paul is saying, this is true. And so this is not saying you have to somehow conjure up some positive feelings about it. He's instead saying, look, believe that this is the reality, and then adjust your life accordingly. Now, he, he offers us, I think, two, two dynamics of how we experience this in our life. The first one, he says this. He says, set your heart on things above. Set your heart on things above. He's talking about my desires or my cravings. 
He's saying, set your desires, your cravings, and your longings on Jesus, on that hidden life you have in him. Now, what does it mean to set your heart on something? We're, we're in the middle of a season that is all about setting your heart on things. Right? Some of us have a Christmas list, and we have our hearts set on a particular thing under the tree. Right? Some of us, uh, maybe we have our hearts set on a particular family atmosphere when we all gather around on, on that day. Right? We, we really want that hallmark warmth, even though we're afraid it's not going to happen, right? What is it? To set your heart on something is to, is to place your desire or your cravings or your longings on it. Paul is saying that to experience what it means to have your life hidden in Christ and God is to set your heart and your longings on the things of Jesus. To desire him and his kingdom. Or as Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and everything else will be added to you. Now how do you begin to do that? If you notice, like, uh, I don't know if you get the, the Target advertisements in the mail or what, like, there's all kinds of, like, Christmas ads right now, right? You'll notice, what do, they, what do they send you? They don't send you a fact sheet of, like, here's the material that this Barbie playhouse is made out of. Uh, here's how many ounces it is. Here's, here's where the plastic came from. And here's what Pantone pink this is. No, what do they do? They show you a picture of a happy child playing with a Barbie playhouse. You see, social media and advertisers and marketers, they know how to cultivate your cravings. Our, cult, our cravings are cultivated through pictures and images and stories of what the good life is, of what is happiness, of what is joy, of what does it look like to actually have peace in my life. You see, what Paul is saying is the primary task of being a follower of Jesus is cultivating your love for him. Not, not, not the thoughts that you have about him, although your thoughts are important, but what Jesus wants is not just your head, he wants your heart. He wants you to desire him. He wants you to love him. He wants you to worship him. And how we do that is by ruminating on and, and contemplating and considering who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for me. All of us have a picture in our minds of what the good life is of what it looks like when I'm happy, when I'm fulfilled, when I'm satisfied, when, I, when I'm joyful. And for most of us, for a lot of us, those ideas are shaped in part by our family, in part by culture, in part by uh, TikTok and Instagram telling us this is what happiness looks like, this is what joy looks like. What Paul is saying, set your joy and your love and your desire on Jesus. Make him the object of your desires. And part of this happens as we worship Right, when we gather in worship, part of what we're doing is we're, we're telling a different story to ourselves. Or we're allowing God to tell us a different story to ourselves. To say, what is true about me? What is true about the world? It's not that if I buy something, then I'll be happy. It's that I was purchased by Jesus. And that's my happiness. That's my joy. That's my hope. And so what happens as we tell this story, as we enter into worship, as we open up the scriptures, is we are teaching our hearts to love differently. To love him and his kingdom and what he's done for us. Like as soon as you begin to understand that, now you begin to understand man, advertisers, influencers, social media, they're offering me a different kingdom, offering me a different salvation, 
and says, if you buy this, you'll be happy. If you own this, then you'll be joyful. If you get the promotion, then you'll finally have the good life that you want. No, if I have Jesus, then I have what I need. That's what it means to set your heart on him, to desire him. Set your heart, seek the things that are above. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever your heart is saturated with, when life gets stressful and you're, you get wrung out, what comes out of you? It's the Jesus of the world. How do you begin to do that? The second thing that Paul tells us to do is to set your mind on things above. Set your mind on things above. Uh, this is the same word that he uses in Philippians 2 uh, when he says, have the same attitude as Jesus, who though he was in the form of God and he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. To set your mind on things above has this idea of coming alongside Jesus and adopting his way of life. It is choosing. This is where you and I have a choice in our day-to-day lives to set my mind and set my intention on doing the things that Jesus did, on adopting his way of life, on choosing to follow him literally in the everyday stuff of my life because he is leading me into that hidden place. He is leading me to the right hand of God the Father. And so as I choose to follow him in my everyday life, I am choosing to live as if what Paul says here is actually true, that I'm actually at the right hand of God the Father through Jesus. And so to set your mind on him is to adopt Jesus' way of life, to choose in my everyday actions and decisions to follow him, to practice his way of life, to pray like he prayed, to rest like he rest, to, to seek peace like he peace, sought peace, That's what it means to set your mind. And it is a decision that you and I make. Every morning when you wake up, you are deciding what you want to set your mind to. And if you're like me, your alarm on your phone goes off and you snooze it a couple times and then you open it up and there's a whole host of notifications. Target sent me another ad. Instagram wants me to look at another reel. There's all kinds of things that the world wants me to set my mind on. But if I understand that my life is hidden with Christ and God, and if I want to experience that, to respond to that, to, to understand that, then part of the task that I have, the role that I have, is to choose to set my mind on things that are above. To set my mind on Him. To shape my life after Him. To embrace habits that look like Him. And then I will begin to experience more of who He is. I'll begin to understand what Jesus said when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and then everything else will be added to this. One of of the books that shaped me more than anything else is a book called You Are What You Love, uh, which is on the spiritual power of habit. He said this, our most fundamental orientation to the world, the longings and desires that orient us towards some version of the good life is shaped and configured by imitation and practice. He's saying, I shape my loves through practice and habit. A couple weeks ago, I was coming to church on Sunday morning, and I uh, was running late. And typically on my Sunday morning, I go up Eastland Avenue. I stop at Giant Eagle. I pick up communion bread. And then because I'm close to it, I loop around the circle, and I go to Crimson Cup. And I get a nice little cup of coffee for my Sunday morning. A few weeks ago, I, I didn't have to go to Giant Eagle. I was running late. 
And I got in my car, and before I realized it, I was on Eastland Avenue, I was going around the circle, and I was pulling in a crimson cup. I was like, what am I doing here? I even had a cup of coffee that I had made at home that morning. You see, what had happened is I had trained my desires through habits to desire crimson cup. Whatever the thing is for you, chocolate, Netflix, alcohol. I train, we train our desires through habits, and then they become our life. What Paul is saying is if you want to understand the identity that you have in Jesus, then your role is to train your desires through the intentional practices of Jesus. And then you will begin to inhabit the world like Jesus inhabited the world. One way we do this is through Advent. This is why we do Advent in the way that we do, because this is a season in which uh, it has the uh, kind of the veneer of being very Christian-ish, but it's actually just about buying things and consuming things. But Advent teaches us to wait. It teaches us to slow down and to remember that our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is in his kingdom, which is coming. And so the task of waiting is the task of trusting and obeying and following him in my everyday life, even if I don't feel like it and even if I don't see it right now. And so we slow down and we, we wait and we pray and we worship and we hope. And that's how we begin to understand. My life is hidden with Christ and God. And so my circumstances may not be telling me that right now. My feelings may not be telling me right, that right now. But God's word and his spirit is saying, your life is hidden with Christ and God. And so you don't have to earn it or work for it or even maintain it. Your identity is in Jesus. And so look to him. Hope in him. Long for him. Because in him you have everything that you need. And so that's why we sing. That's why we worship. That's why we open up the scriptures. That's why we pray. That's why we fast. Not to do all those things because of the Christian thing to do, but to do those things because that's what Jesus did. And as we begin to do those things, we begin to experience at a deeper level that my life is hidden with Christ in God. And so I have all that I need. Jesus, we come to you understanding that as we come to you, it is like we are on your lap and we are turning to God the Father and saying, Father, you hear us. You hear us. You approve of us. You listen to our prayers, not because we did anything, but because of what Jesus did for us. God, may we be people who set our hearts on your kingdom, who set our desires, our love on your kingdom and who shape our lives in accordance with your Son, who gives us that access, that authority, that approval. God, it's a season in which we're tempted with a lot, of different, a lot of different things. Would you help us to set our hearts and our minds on you? And God, that one day when Jesus comes in his kingdom and his glory, it says that you'll share that glory with us. May we live for that day. May you give us the strength to walk through whatever our circumstances are right now. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.